0: Welcome to Whole Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Katie.
1: And I'm Serena.
0: And today we are looking at Doctrine and Covenants 121 through 124 for Come Follow Me.
1: And we are also proud members of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Dialogue Podcast Network is a collective of independent, interesting podcasts that promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry into all aspects of LDS thought, tradition, arts, and culture. One cool new podcast that we are excited to check out is Bristlecone Firesides. They are also a part of Dialogue Podcast Network. They host casual conversation around a virtual fireside about God, the earth, Earth, the universe and everything. Their hosts, Abby and Madison, strive to re enchant the natural world with an ecologically based spirituality centered in sacred texts rooted in the earth, spoken through the language of faith, and lived through activist issues facing us today.
0: Welcome to the Dialogue Podcast Network, friends.
1: Doctrine Covenants 121 through 124. This was a read. Sections 121 through 123. I like kind of did a deep dive.
0: Good. Yeah, there's yeah, a lot of good stuff in there. Just a reminder for people who are unaware, 121 and 122 are The Prayer and Prophecies Written from Liberty Jail by Joseph yes. Smith. And then 123 is a message to the saints from Joseph in Liberty Jail. 124 is the long one. It's a Revelation to Joseph after being expelled from Missouri. He talks about temples and about specific people and their duties in the church and establishing like the quorum of the 70 and things like that.
1: Yeah. Okay. So context of Liberty Jail first, basically in like early 1838, Joseph Smith said that Adam and Diamond was in Davies County, meaning like where Adam and Eve were born, etc. The second coming would happen there, etc., etc. And within like three months, the population of Davies County exploded with like an additional 1,500 people, which is really mm. fast for back then. And non Mormon settlers feared that too many Mormons would come and interfere with their elections. On August 6th in 1838, there was an election day battle, basically, a bunch of members of the church showed up and said, hey, we want to vote. And then a bunch of other people who were non-Mormons prevented them from voting. One person who's non-Mormon, Dick Weldon, said in another county that Mormons hadn't been allowed to vote any more than black people. He used a different word, but uh, a Mormon, Samuel Brown, said that that was false, that they had been allowed to vote in another county. That led to a brawl. In this brawl, like a physical fight, at the beginning mm. of it, John Butler, who is Mormon, said, oh, yes, you Danites, here is a job for us, which apparently, like, encouraged the Mormons on, and then they won the brawl. After that brawl on the election day, that's when the non-Mormons there said that they swore to drive off the Mormons and that they wouldn't spare women or children. But, like, if you remember, the Danites were a group of people who swore allegiance to the leaders of the church regardless of right and wrong. So, very fanatic group who were willing to do anything. After that, Joseph Smith joined a group of 100 armed men to surround Judge Adam Black's house and made him sign a document to say that he wasn't attached to a mob. So basically, there were rumors of all these mobs going on that were going to expel the Mormons from the area. And Joseph Smith was like, well, I heard that these officials were involved. I'm going to make you sign a legal document that says that you're not involved. They did that with... A couple other people with a local sheriff and with others made them sign documents saying that they weren't attached to vigilante communities, but, like, they had guns. You know what I mean? Like, hmm. here, sign this document saying that you're not involved, but uh, I'm going to point a gun at you, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, it says armed. I assume when it says armed that it means guns, but technically, I guess he could have had, like, a a pitchfork or, like, a flamethrower or something, but anyway... Um, <laughs> After that happened, there was the DeWitt expulsion, which was a a town, I guess. Um, Multiple Mormons were kidnapped and held, including one woman and her children. One child actually died while they were being held. And in all of this, the non-Mormons told the Mormons there that they had 10 days to leave Or they were going to harm them, right? The non Mormons burnt down the Smith Humphrey barn and stable. The town was besieged. So, like, basically, the town just kind of holed up and tried to, like, just stay put, kind of like uh, the stories in the Book of Mormon about fighting against the Lamanites. You know what I mean? So, they just kind of were stuck there for a little bit and had to eat loose livestock to survive. But then Mm -hmm. eventually, they did leave DeWitt and. Even some women and children died on their way out because they got sick and one was pregnant and from walking in the river. So the election day was August 6th.
0: 1838.
1: In 1838, yes. And then Mm -hmm. October 18th was when the whole thing that we talked about last week happened, right, where the Danites decided to go rogue and loot and pillage and burn Non-Mormon towns. So Mm -hmm. Colonel Hinkle, he was either a member of the church or he was sympathetic to the church. He joined other Mormons of the Caldwell County Militia, and they were joined by the Danite organization, and they acted as vigilantes and marched in three groups to Davies County. So last week, we just mentioned Galatin, which was a town there. There are actually three towns that they hit that night. So hmm. Lyman White led and attacked the town of Millport. David Patton's... In Wikipedia, it said his nickname was Captain Fear Not. <laughs> Mm. hmm He had tactical Latin. And then Seymour Brunson attacked Grindstone Fort. And in all these towns, they plundered the towns, chased the non-Mormons out, burnt the buildings. The Missourians fled to other counties, the non-Mormons. All the stuff plundered went to the bishop's storehouse in Diamond. I don't know how to pronounce that. I don't know if that's, like, short from Adam on Diamond. <laughs> it's just mm. D-I-A-H-M-A-N. In Galatin, the only thing that didn't burn down was a shoe store. Wow. And then in the next few days, Lyman White led more Mormons to chase more non-Mormon Missourians out from the neighboring farms from the towns, and they similarly plundered and burned. I feel like reading this, it's easy to be detached from it. So I'm going to read this quote here. According to one witness, we could stand in our door and see houses burning every night for over two weeks. The Mormons completely gutted Davies County. There was scarcely a Missourian's home left standing in the county. Nearly everyone was burned. Wikipedia also says even Missourians who were friendly to Mormons had not been spared. One interesting tidbit, when a Mormon band plundered and burned the Taylor home, Taylor, I guess they're non-Mormons, but anyway, one young Mormon, Benjamin F. Johnson, argued with his fellow vigilantes into leaving a horse for a pregnant Mrs. Taylor and her children to ride to safety. Ironically, as a result of his kindness, he was the only Mormon who was positively identified to have participated in the home burnings. After several non-Mormons made statements to the authorities that Johnson had acted as a moderating influence on the Danites, he was allowed to escape rather than stand trial. Mm. Let's see. So many Latter-day Saints were greatly troubled by this. Mormon leader John Coral wrote, quote, The love of pillage grew upon them very fast, for they plundered every kind of property they could get a hold of. And then there were some controversy with some members of the church denying that the Mormons did this, that the Danites did this. They're like, oh, well, the Missourians burned their own homes in order to blame us. However, none of those things were ever proven. Like the eyewitness accounts didn't match up with it. And actually both non-Mormons and other Mormons back then supported the claims that the Mormons were involved in, in these lootings and burnings. And also the fact that the looted property was found in the possession of Latter-day Saints. And even Parley P. Pratt conceded that some burnings had been done by Mormons. Hmm. Based on the available evidence, Lesur, which is the author of this book called... The 1838 Mormon War in Missouri, Stephen C. Lasseur estimates that Mormons were responsible for the burning of 50 homes or shops and the displacement of 100 non-Mormon families. Mm. Millport, which at the time was the largest city in the county and the center for trade, never recovered from the Mormon burnings and became a ghost town. Wow. After that, local citizens were outraged, understandably. And they retaliated and burned several Mormon homes near Millport, including the home of one of Joseph Smith's sisters-in-law, Agnes Smith, who was chased from her home with two small children while her home was burned. Anyway, and then they all gathered, the Mormons at this time gathered in Andiamen for protection. It was after that that Thomas Marsh and Orson Hyde signed the document about the Danites. So now we're caught up to last week, if that makes sense. So going from that to Liberty Jail, there is the Battle of Crooked River, which there was kind of like this neutral spot, I guess, in between where the Mormons were taking refuge and where like the Missourians were like on the other side, if that makes sense. And the Missouri city or county militia kind of like patrolled there. And there was rumored that the militia had taken some Mormons prisoner while on patrol of the neutral land around the river. And the members of the church advanced and fought. They won the battle, but sustained heavy casualties only like one Militia member died, but like six or nine or something members of the church died there. News of this battle quickly spread and caused widespread panic in Missouri. And somehow the reports got exaggerated and said that like everybody died except for one person. So it like flipped, if that makes sense. Hmm. Exaggerated reports of that battle made their way to Lilburn Boggs, who was Missouri's governor, and he already didn't like Mormons from when he and them had lived in Jackson County. So that's when he, like, mustered the 2,500 member state militia to put down the Mormon insurrection. Also, Sidney Rigdon's July 4th sermon that talked about a war of extermination. He might have used that. And actually, we talked about that last week, too, because Sidney Rigdon also spoke out against dissenters. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so then Governor Boggs issued the extermination order on October 27th which was that Mormons should be treated as enemies and must be exterminated or driven from the state if necessary for public peace. After the extermination order was the Hans Mill massacre. Hmm. And Wikipedia says it's actually unlikely that news of the extermination order would have gotten to Livingston County so quickly. Wikipedia uh, or whoever wrote it, Theorizes that Mormon, I don't know if it theorizes, it says Mormon dissenters from Davies County, so that could have been Orson Hyde, could have been Thomas Marsh, fled to Livingston County and reportedly told the Livingston County militia that Mormons were gathering at Hans Mill to mount a raid into Livingston County, which could have been true. The Livingston men became thoroughly imbued with the same spirit and were eager for the raid, feeling an extraordinary sympathy for the outrages suffered by their neighbors. And that's when they went to Hans Mill and did the Hans Mill massacre. And then was the siege of Far West and the church leaders, including Joseph Smith, were captured and taken to Liberty Jail.
0: Hmm. Thank you for that.
1: Anyway, section 121 is given right after all that had happened.
0: So... Off of what you just said, let me actually go to come follow me, okay for section one twenty one through one twenty three the introduction it introduces liberty, jail, and the poor conditions there. And it says, the dungeon is where Joseph Smith and a few of his brethren spent most of their imprisonment four frigid months during the winter of 1838 to 1839, awaiting trial for charges of treason against the state of Missouri. During this time, Joseph was constantly receiving news about the suffering of the saints. And when I read this, I was like, Why would it say that they had charges of treason and then not say, like, what was happening? So thank you for explaining all that. That's (sighs) kind of the background. Yep. It's tricky because some of the people in these mobs that were burning down non-Mormon homes were saying, I'm from the church when they weren't active participating members of the church. That's what something that I read said.
1: That seems like it was written by a Mormon apologist.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just toss that in to say that there's a lot of confusion on this part of our history, yeah. but it is obvious that it was connected to our church, that it wasn't totally innocent members being driven from Missouri, and yeah. we don't really get that in church history.
1: yeah. This reminds me of Black Lives Matter and Antifa and the militias in the state of Utah that formed against like, Black Lives Matter protesters. Yeah. And people are like, oh, the protesters are so violent. And, oh, well, that person actually wasn't a protester. It was a plant from from this, like, far-right organization. And people are like, right. oh, well, Antifa is really violent. And BLM and Antifa, like, they're the exact same thing. Whereas, like, other people who are, like, in it are like, no, actually, they're way different. They have different goals and methods. They just happen to align sometimes. You know, that's kind of what all this reminds me of.
0: I thought of the same thing, like when people are like, it was actually Black Lives Matter protesters Mm -hmm. at the insurrection and it's like, yeah, no. (laughs) let's go back to the footage on the ground and see like, yeah, yeah, so lots of confusion and like, it makes sense if there's huge groups of people that there would be confusion on like every single person's role.
1: But like Uh what you said about, let's go back to the footage on the ground, like, like, putting it in this context like let's go back Mm -hmm. to what the members of the church were actually saying what sydney Rigdon said about exterminating people Mm -hmm. even dissenters what the danites said in that meeting about killing dissenters you know what the danites actually did about looting and pillaging and burning down those towns like that is something that actually happened their eyewitness accounts multiple eyewitness accounts like You cannot Mm -hmm. just, like, explain that away. Like, the Danites, like, swore allegiance to Joseph Smith above everything else, you know, and this is what they did.
0: Yeah, it's probably, like, people leaning too hard into the fuzziness, like, well, we don't know exactly what was happening, and ignoring, like, the actual hard facts of, like, what we do have.
1: Yeah, that's what I don't want to do. I don't want to lean too hard into, like, the the fuzziness Mm -hmm. and be like, oh, we don't know.
0: Yeah, so with that there's a lot going on when joseph is put in liberty jail and when he's there the saints are being driven out like actively while joseph is in liberty jail i was thinking about how joseph had i mean hundreds thousands of terrible things happened in his life things that happened that were in his control and things that happened that were outside of his control And we kind of point to Liberty Jail as kind of like the biggest trial that Joseph ever faced. Being trapped in this prison, they had very little food. The food that they were given was rotten. They had very little protection from winter. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have a lot of communication with the saints, so they didn't know a lot of what was going on. But the information they did get was bad news. I feel like... I've been pointed to this section a lot of times when I've gone through hard things in my life, and at times it's been super comforting, and at times it's been like, okay, Joseph had his experience, I'm having my experience kind of thing. So let's kind of read this section 121. Okay. Part of it is him praying to God, and then it immediately goes into God's answer. So it says, Oh God, where art thou? And where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? How long shall thy hand be stayed, and thine eye, yea, thy pure eye, behold, from the eternal heavens the wrongs of thy people, and of thy servants, and thine ear be penetrated with their cries? Yea, O Lord, how long shall they suffer these wrongs and unlawful oppressions, before thine heart shall be softened toward them, and thy bowels be moved upon with compassion toward them?" O Lord, God Almighty, maker of heaven, earth, and seas, of all things that in them are, and who controllest and subjectest the devil, stretch forth thy hand, let thine eye pierce, let thy pavilion be taken up, and let thy hiding place no longer be covered, let thine ear be inclined, let thy heart Be softened, and let thy bowels be moved upon with compassion toward us. Let thine anger be kindled against our enemies, and again in the fury of thine heart with thy sword avenge us of our wrongs. Remember thy suffering saints, O our God, and thy servants will rejoice in thy name forever. I want to pause right here, really quick, and just say, Wow, the lamenting here is so heartfelt and touching. There's been many times where I've lamented to God because of my disability and because of wrongs that I've seen in the world. The word oppression is actually seen a lot in these sections here where Joseph is talking to God. He's seeing the wrongs that saints are going through and lamenting to God about this suffering and wanting it to change. And that is a cry that is still echoing today. Marginalized people that are being oppressed, I mean, within the church and outside of the church, this is something that is still happening and we're still crying to God for this to be changed And then it goes into God's answer. My son, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thine afflictions shall be but a small moment. And then if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high. Thou shalt triumph over all thy foes. Thy friends do stand by thee and they shall hail thee again with warm hearts and friendly hands. Thou art not yet as Job. Thy friends do not contend against thee, neither charge thee with a transgression as they did Job. I
1: feel like that's inaccurate, though. Horson Hyde and Thomas Marsh, like, they were friends with Joseph Smith, and they did dissent by this point, you know?
0: Oh, that's an interesting point. There were many times in Joseph's life where he was betrayed by his friends.
1: Which, I, I've i already said that I don't necessarily believe God is speaking through Joseph and the Doctrine and Covenants. But that's why it kind of makes sense to me in the mindset of, like, Joseph is comforting himself, if that makes sense, because hmm. if he's saying thy friends have not left thee, it makes sense for him to affirm those people who haven't left him as his friends. Does that make sense? And to like disavow the people who have betrayed him as not his friends, because that makes it easier for him to cope with the betrayal. To me, that makes more sense than God being like, oh, yeah, those people were never your friends and like not even mentioning their betrayal. Hmm. Sorry, Continue.
0: I I think I want to, yeah, I think I want to stop reading there. It's kind of those two verses that we focus on the most as the answer to Joseph's heartfelt prayer. Oh,
1: also verse 7 in section 122. I feel like that one gets used a lot too.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Verse 7 is kind of long. It talks about no matter what happens to you, it goes into like if you're cast into the pit or the sentence of death is put upon thee or... All darkness combines against you, or the gates of hell open its mouth before thee. These things shall give thee experience, and shall be for thy good. The Son of Man hath descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? Therefore hold on thy way.
1: I've heard these verses a lot when I've been upset,
0: you know? Yeah, yeah, and I think, like... This is getting into kind of the nuance of disability because now I perceive these different than I did before and I'll probably Mm -hmm. perceive them differently again. The part where it talks about thou art not yet as Job and the son of man hath descended below them all. Like this happens a lot with disabled people. People point to people that are quote unquote more disabled or in a different circumstance that is seen as harder and say, well, it could be worse, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that is a little gaslighty. Let people have a hard time in their experiences if they're <laughs> having a hard time. You like. said it, not me, Katie! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a real thing. Like, that doesn't solve a pe- a person's circumstance, Yeah, really. I mean... I think that a change in perspective can help, but the existence of another person having a harder time, like yeah. that puts that person down. That is trying to measure disability against disability, which mm-hmm. can't really be a thing because disability changes so much yeah, and is so different based on the individual experiencing it.
1: And the intersections.
0: Yeah, you're right. That part I didn't super like. But ironically, when people do say, God only gives you what you can handle. That phrase still does comfort me to a point, at least in my circumstance. Mm -hmm. I think that it could not comfort people if they're um, depressed or feeling suicidal. They feel like, well, no, I was given more than I can handle and I've been Mm -hmm. brought to this point. You know what I mean? So even that might not be a comforting concept and the concepts are kind of connected Verse 8, when it does bring it to Jesus, talking about the son of man hath descended below them all, art thou greater than he? That's kind of like Mm -hmm. a sassy way to say it, but I get the concept and I appreciate more than the comparison of Christ because like you have your own trials and hard things and you should be validated in that and having a hard time with those and you should be given the accommodations and whatever you need to get through that instead of being compared to a God who went through harder things. I do like the connection of like the fact that Christ went through everything that he went through and he understands our trials so personally that he's able to comfort us. I make that connection. This connection isn't specifically made in this verse, but that's a way that I can kind of deal with this verse in a more affirming way that would support someone going through a hard time and better connect them to Christ than how this verse does it.
1: Yeah, agree with what you're saying there. In my notes, I wrote the whole talk about Jesus descending below these things. It only works if you believe that Jesus contains like the sum all of like marginalization or if you can like Hmm. somehow explain how Jesus experienced different marginalizations despite appearing to be a cishet able-bodied man who was not white but still cishet able-bodied man right and we have growing theology around like a disabled Jesus there's queer theology with speculations about how Jesus could have been queer we have us saying oh we could have been neurodivergent as well as disabled you know like there are lots of ways that we can like read that into Jesus but if you don't believe in that theology but you still believe that he was a real person then you can i don't know it it can be gaslighting cuz you're like well he didn't experience what i experienced he didn't give birth you know what i mean like mm-hmm. there's certain ways where where that can really be like uh no i don't get how he can get it you know and we never talk about like how the atonement works you know what i mean
0: You brought something up really interesting there of how our biases are shown and how we perceive the atonement. if we say something like Christ's resurrection is a similitude of the experience of a transgendered person or Christ could have been queer or Christ was black, like when people say these things and then other people reject them, like that's rejecting what we always say about the atonement, that like Christ experienced everything Mm, and then... mm -hmm. Like he understands everything, but then you can't handle it when we apply that to our Like he either
1: experienced everything or he didn't. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I find that a hard piece of theology to grapple with. Yeah. But getting to a different point is like if you do believe that he experienced these marginalizations, then this verse can be a good lesson and privilege, I think. Although Hmm. it is kind of sassy, you know, just remembering that you still contain certain privileges and to keep that in mind when you're in a hard place. Although after what you said earlier, I'm not sure which side I agree with more. Like if someone is going through a hard thing, is it right for you to be like, well, you're still privileged in this way? I don't know what the right answer to that is. I'll be upfront about that because I, I could see both sides. I feel like I've yeah. been on both sides, been like, yeah. well, you're, you're really privileged right now. Like, I've been enraged being like, how can you not be aware of how much privilege you hold at this moment? But then I've also been like, on the other side of it and been like, well, that doesn't take away my suffering at this moment.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a really, really good point. It's important to have some kind of balance of both perspectives. Wow, that's really interesting. If the Son of Man, like, if Christ, was oppressed in every single way that a person can be oppressed, and he descended below them all. We are privileged. Art thou greater than he? Like, yeah. we do have privileges that exist outside of what Christ experienced. Hmm.
1: I guess, I don't know. I feel like it takes a very, very self aware, open, introspective, and humble person to be in a moment of oppression and listen to someone else say you're still privileged most people most of us would react badly to that regardless of what should be done like i think most of us if we're going through something hard and someone says you're still privileged most of us especially if we have lots of internalized like whiteness you know and white supremacy most of us will Mm. kind of do a knee jerk how dare you sort of thing you know what I mean
0: Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. so
1: I guess point with saying that is maybe the question isn't what approach should be done but just like what approach can be done like if that just doesn't work because people are going to knee jerk against it and say well I'm still hurting then maybe don't (laughs) Like tell them after the fact, tell them before the fact, but in that moment, probably they're not going to be open to be listening to that.
0: You know, while you were saying that, I realized my example earlier of people saying like, oh, it could be worse. You could have this disability and that would be worse when they see my disability. Mm -hmm. I hate that and I've always hated that. And I feel like rating disability – It happens so frequently by able-bodied or non-disabled people that that's why I fight against it. When it happens by the individual, meaning like I have these needs and I don't have these needs and these are the accommodations I need, like that makes sense to me. But if it's comparing it to another person, then that gets a little iffy. Maybe it's because I'm looking at my own marginalized community and having outsiders interact with us in a way I don't feel Mm -hmm. is appropriate I think Mm -hmm. that if you're marginalized and you look at other marginalized communities and multiply marginalized people Mm -hmm. that can give you more insight like yes I'm experiencing this hurt and this is real and valid but also on top of my hurt that I experience with my marginalization this person is also experiencing this this and this and that can empower that concept like I don't feel like I'm being shrugged off or ignored mm-hmm. when I see someone who's more marginalized than me experiencing oppression from multiple directions, right? I can still yeah. have my valid space and fight for my rights and then also see this other person in their hurt and try to also recognize where I can help them yeah. and recognize their oppression and try to fight against the uh barriers that they have in front of them.
1: Which is why I think it's important like all of this is coming from your own initiative Mm -hmm. from inside of you not from someone else outside of your community someone able-bodied telling you this right so it's about Mm -hmm. it has to come from inside of us to realize our own positions of privilege and intersecting marginalizations that we're not privy to right Mm -hmm. so i think that's why it's important to when we're In a good place or like a relatively good place for each of us individually to learn more about intersecting marginalization so that we can have that knowledge and perspective to draw on when we do go through hard things. It it, coming from outside sources from people who are not experiencing it at all is not helpful.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And you know what, like connecting the fact of how it's the same systems that are oppressing different marginalized people Mm -hmm. and how like truly intersectionality is like the way to understand all that that helps too it's not like a person that is a different marginalization is my enemy because you know i need help and they need help it's the person that's oppressing us that's the enemy because we both need help
1: yeah agreed so verse seven
0: Yeah, in 122.
1: Yeah. This phrase, if the very jaws of hell shall gape open the mouth wide after thee, know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. Like, the whole, all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for my good is not something I agree with. I think it's really harmful this phrase is a narrative that's being sold by both abusers in the moments of abuse. Like, I'm trying to teach you a mm-hmm. lesson. I'm trying to prepare you for the real world. I'm doing this for your own good. And mm-hmm. by survivors who are trying to, like, cope with the trauma that they've experienced, cope with the abuse that they've experienced, who are trying to heal, trying to make sense of it, but in a way that's not keeping their, like, sense of self-worth intact. Does that make sense? Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: And I really, I really don't like it.
0: October actually is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And I think it's cool that you caught on to that in this section. It's really relevant. I mean, not just this month, obviously all the time. But I thought that section 123, where Joseph is speaking to the saints from Liberty Jail and kind of saying like, yeah, a lot of things are out of our control right now, but here's what you can do. One of the biggest things of advice that he goes on a couple verses is just documenting what's happening around them, (laughs) documenting how they're being affected, what's happening to them, everything from like tangible things to just social things. And I know that that's good advice that's given to people in domestic violence situations is do your best to like document what's happening around you, pictures, writing things down, knowing dates, as safely as you can. If you can't do it in a safe way, don't put yourself at risk. But if it's possible, that can be a really big benefit to you in the future. And then as always, talk to someone you trust and reach out. Don't feel like you're alone in your experience.
1: Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that. I I saw that too. And I was kind of like, well didn't we just have a section a few weeks ago about like forgiving people a bunch of times you know but um so i mean my 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 cynical thing is like well okay why are you telling some people to document all the transgressions and like hold people accountable and yet you're telling other people that you need to forgive you (laughs) anyway you can't just say that the scriptures only say to forgive like you're saying there is this section that is encouraging people to keep track of the harmful things that people have done to them. Um, I actually said shitty in my notes, but whatever. So uh, <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, if you're having conflicting information in the scriptures, do the thing that works better for you.
0: And I mean, that's a good point, because both those sections that are conflicting, they actually both end with, ultimately, God is gonna take care of things. God has the final say on what ends up happening, but. Also, we need to emphasize what Serena said. You need to do what's best for you and make sure that you are in a safe situation.
1: And I wish I didn't have to say this, but if your church leaders are not helping you or believing you, don't go to them. Or if you're worried that they're not going to help you or believe you, then don't go to them. Find community resources that are not affiliated with the church, that have experience in dealing with these situations, that help survivors and reach out to them instead because church leaders are not equipped or trained or knowledgeable enough about these things to solve these problems
0: and there are biases that exist in church culture that can prevent especially women or afab people from getting help if they're in these situations
1: yes people shouldn't have to be traumatized in order to like Learn things in order to like go through life and enjoy it, like that shouldn't be the baseline for life. Understanding the church people are going to be like, Well, opposition in all things, well, there can be opposition without trauma. Yeah. And actually, this is like a big thing in like psychology, too, where for a long time, people are like, oh, if you go through hard things, it will make you stronger. Right. And this is a huge thing in like pop psychology, you know, like on social media, like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, like Pink or Kelly Clarkson lyrics or whatever it is. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Like, yeah. No, whatever didn't kill me gave me like a crippling mental illness. You know what I mean? Like. (laughs) Yep. Um. And so, like, this is something that I've been aware of a lot, and it's something that, like, a lot of my close friends who are survivors who have been traumatized have said kind of amongst ourselves. But I actually found a study that supports this, that debunks the whole what-doesn't-kill-you-makes-you-stronger idea it was published on Brown University by Cambridge University Press, published actually only just last year in June, called Assessing the Relationship Between Psychosocial Stressors and Psychiatric Resilience Among Chilean Disaster Survivors. Hmm what they found was that past stressful experiences do not create resilience to future trauma it is actually the opposite past stressors sensitize people to future traumas thereby increasing their chances of developing a mental health disorder so I'm just going to read some of these paragraphs from this news article the research team examined 1,160 Chileans in 2003 and 2011 both before and after the 6th most powerful earthquake on record and subsequent tsunamis struck their country in 2010. When the study began in 2003, none of the participants had a history of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, or major depressive disorder, MDD. So my little commentary there is I wish that they had screened for other mental health issues and Mm -hmm. and, and Mm -hmm. included neurodivergence, but it's still an interesting study nonetheless. But anyway, beforehand, none of the over 1,000 people had PTSD or MDD. After the 2010 earthquake, 9.1% of the survivors were diagnosed with PTSD and 14.4 percent were diagnosed with mdd so major depressive disorder the risk of developing these disorders was particularly high among individuals who experienced multiple pre-disaster stressors such as serious illness or injury which sounds like disability death of a loved one divorce unemployment or financial struggles legal troubles, or loss of a valuable possession. To be at increased risk for post-disaster PTSD relative to those with zero stressors, individuals had to have crossed a severity threshold of four or more pre-disaster stressors. So like to have high risk for PTSD, they had to have four of those things before this huge natural disaster, right? And then Mm -hmm. MDD, depression, displayed a slightly different pattern. Every pre-disaster stressor, even a single stressor, increased a person's risk of developing post-disaster MDD, and each additional stressor further increased the risk, Mm. which is really interesting. And then, so Brown... That published this news article about this study. One of their professors of epidemiology at their School of Public Health said, Unfortunately, the same may well hold true with COVID 19. We're already witnessing how Black and Latino Americans are experiencing higher rates of COVID infections and fatalities. All evidence suggests that disadvantaged groups who frequently have higher levels of prior life stressors, such as limited finances and job instability, will be most likely. To to suffer the most from serious mental health conditions following the pandemic. Mm. Then one final quote from the actual study says in contrast to the stress inoculation hypothesis which i assume is the hypothesis where like if you have more stress then you're more resilient What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. In contrast to that, results indicated that experiencing multiple stressors increased the vulnerability to developing PTSD and or MDD after a natural disaster. Increased knowledge regarding the individual variations of these disorders is essential to inform targeted mental health interventions after a natural disaster, especially in understudied populations. Anyway, just wanted to show everybody... What doesn't kill you does not make you stronger. It makes you more vulnerable to having poor mental health, which affects everything in your life Mm -hmm. and can be in and of itself a disability. So like the whole what doesn't kill you makes you stronger in this scripture is actually flying in the face of our understanding of disability principles. Does that make sense?
0: Yes. Hey, you know what? Somehow we both made connections to COVID in this section. I love that you made that oh, connection nice. there with um people that are experiencing COVID more harshly or people that are mostly yeah. marginalized, especially the black and brown community. Mm-hmm. I made the connection through like reflecting on Liberty Jail and how it's taught as like one of the biggest trials of Joseph's life and Joseph was looking to God for help, and it wasn't coming, I connected that to how disabled people have experienced COVID as well. And mm-hmm. I I thought it would be really cool to share some stories of how the pandemic has affected disabled yes. people around the world. Yes. So this is kind of our liberty jail at this time, where like every single part of our lives that could be going wrong are going wrong. <laughs> yep. And disabled people are just experiencing it so much greater than non-disabled people so I found a website it's called internationaldisabilityalliance.org they have a lot of purposes but one of the studies that they did they interviewed disabled people around the world and asked them like how the pandemic how COVID-19 affected them mm-hmm. and gosh there's like so many stories the first story is in Nigeria There's some leprosy communities, and the communities are closely connected to the government. The government kind of gives them supplies. Even before the pandemic, they're like a separated community. When COVID-19 happened in Nigeria, their communal care stopped. Aids that would come to their communities stopped coming. They had a complete breakdown of sanitation, health, and employment, They were given information about how you have to social distance and wash your hands and wear gloves. And they were given no face masks, no gloves, no soap, no hand sanitizers, and malaria hit their community. Oh, my gosh. The country tried to better understand how they could help disabled people through the pandemic, and they held a giant meeting with disabled people and People that had leprosy were not invited to the meeting because of stigmas against leprosy. Indigenous people in Mexico were also forgotten during the pandemic. This is a story of an indigenous woman from the Zapotec community in Oaxaca, Mexico. In their community, disability is still tied to like sin, sin in a past life, or sin of the parents in their indigenous communities. There was a lack of transportation, a lack of hospital access. If you can get to a hospital, they're not disability accessible. Reading from this story, it says, although the government has adopted the strategy of daily briefings about the situation, she asserts, that the information is not reaching the indigenous communities. Although the Mexican government has provided sign language interpretation during daily reports, the needs of the indigenous communities are very different. The way in which the cities are living the COVID-19 crisis is very different from the experience of indigenous communities. Quote, There are no programs to include indigenous communities in emergency response. Oaxaca is a very big state, and it has a lot of different municipalities, as well as many different indigenous communities. The authorities are giving food to people, but they are not supporting persons with disabilities who don't have access to medicines, diapers, catheters, or other special goods. There are no resources for indigenous persons with disabilities. The next story is about a deaf woman in Saudi Arabia. This says this woman can access official information on COVID-19 in written form, mainly through newspapers, Twitter, WhatsApp, and official government websites. Quote, I would like the Saudi TV to provide live and closed captions in news, press conferences, and other programs broadcasted on TV. Also, the screen that shows the interpreter is too small. Plus, not all the interpreters are qualified and skilled in Saudi sign language. In the country, you can only get medical treatment if it's a life-threatening situation. Most clinics are closed. People are not advised to visit hospitals to avoid getting COVID. And if any deaf person were needing to access medical help, they would not have access to to a sign language interpreter at this time. This woman also explains that some of the deaf population have low literacy levels, meaning they can't read well. And during COVID 19, they rely completely on the signed information, meaning videos and infographics. She also says her father and her brother live with her, so they can help her, but not many deaf individuals can count on family members all the time. Quote Not all the families of the deaf are supportive and helpful like mine. So there's another block of People, in this case, the deaf community, not having access to information, which can be life-threatening during COVID. In Quebec, Quebec became the seventh deadliest place in the world for coronavirus, specifically due to institutionalization. Oh my gosh. Um, Quote, The crisis in long-term residences were flagged with COVID-19 after the media revealed that at the end of March, a long-term care facility had been abandoned by professional staff in the middle of the outbreak. By March 29th, the Heron residence in Quebec, there were only two employees taking care of more than 130 residents. Authorities only noticed this situation after some of the residents started arriving at the hospital with clear signs of COVID-19, but when the hospitals tried to contact the center to inform them, no one would answer the phone. When the authorities arrived at the residence, they encountered no one in the building, and that many of the residents had not eaten or received anything to drink for at least three days. Oh my gosh. There were also two bodies from patients who had died in their beds at least two days before. Some patients were on the floor as they had fallen out of their beds. Others had diapers that hadn't been changed for three or four days with excrement covering their skin. After the situation was uncovered, the private residence was placed under trusteeship and taken by the government. Which could be a good or a bad thing. That's true. According to the media, by April 1st, more than 519 long-term facilities had reported coronavirus cases, Across Canada, it is estimated that 70% and 82% of the deaths by COVID-19 have happened in long-term facilities, and many factors are contributing to this situation. And the person that wrote this story... In 2019, this person had pneumonia and went to the ICU, and after he was in the ICU so long, he acquired muscular atrophy, which is where you don't use your muscles and then you can't Mm -hmm. walk or have trouble walking and regaining strength. He was told by his doctors he was never going to return home. This is quoting the article. The doctors also asked Jonathan if he would like to receive euthanasia, adding (gasps) that the only other option left for him was to stay at the hospital for the rest of his life.
1: Oh, my God! He did not
0: accept euthanasia, and that's how he ended up in the long-term facility. Again, I don't want to rate disabilities, but basically he needs to be in a wheelchair and he was only given the option you can either die or go to this institution and live mm. there for the rest of your life and he's tried to apply for like being sent home and just have a caregiver come to his home mm-hmm. and the government will only allow that if you only need care for 55 hours a week and he needed 168 so they mm. refused to let him leave this oh, institution no. This article is entitled More Dangerous Than the Virus, Phobia and Stigma Experienced by Persons with Psychosocial Disabilities in Nepal. Do you know what psychosocial, what category that would be?
1: One second. That's basically them affirming that mental illness is a disability. Hmm. It's not a diagnosis. It's just like a an umbrella term.
0: Okay. Uh, this one, it's a similar community understanding that disability is tied to like sin and COVID-19 was brought about because of disabled people. He says, When I visit the drugstore to purchase medication, the technician is patronizingly rude because I purchase stigmatizing medications for my condition. He also wonders if I have the virus and am hiding my infection by seeking medications for the virus as well as my mental health challenges. Apparently, it is presumed that those purchasing medicine for mental health conditions would as well purchase medicines for COVID-19. Then there are those that try to fix me. Just a few hours ago, my neighbor, a mother of three and a tailor by profession, asked me whether or not I need medications at all. She assumed that I was a sinner and should do penitence rather than seek medication for my mental health conditions. She was also afraid that I might infect her children with psychosocial or, by assumption, coronavirus. This is a story from Northern Ireland This person has bladder pain syndrome that I can't pronounce. (laughs) It says... On occasion, and I know this doesn't even sound possible to others, I may need to use the bathroom up to 12 times an hour. I need bladder installations, drug therapy, and Botox, but outpatient appointments have been canceled, so my treatment is on hold. My treatment allows me to at least experience a little bit of relief. I imagine there will now be substantial backlog in medical treatments. I don't in any way mean to sound dismissive, but we need to understand that there are many more medical conditions to fight other than COVID-19. COVID has made an already difficult situation nearly impossible. Public restrooms remain unopened, leaving those with bladder and bowel conditions housebound. So even though her area is opening back up, bathrooms are still closed because of COVID, so she can't go anywhere. This person lives in the Netherlands She says she hasn't received any information or specific guidelines for persons with disabilities through the pandemic. For instance, she wonders how wheelchair users can prevent getting COVID-19 when their hands get dirty from touching wheelchair parts. It continues, she also has to remind people not to touch her wheelchair as she cannot guarantee it is COVID-19 free. And then there's this last one. this is how... COVID-19 has affected people with intellectual disabilities in Austria. It's an interview that was done and they go into a couple different difficulties that COVID-19 has brought on to intellectually disabled people. And again, a huge one is how information is shared about the pandemic. This person in the interview says, how has the covid 19 information arrived to you is it easily understood and this person says yes it is understood because there are pictograms above meaning like pictures that describe like how to wash your hands or how far apart to stay away from people it says that means if you go into business there is an automat where you rub your hands with disinfectant there are pictograms that have that you have to wear a mask everything is actually shown it would be easier if it was written also in easy language the interviewer says so do the descriptions but you need easier language and the person with the disability says yes it needs to be understandable the pictograms the pictures are good to understand but then i need easy language to also know what to do so yeah People with intellectual disabilities are left out when the breakdown of information isn't accessible to them. And it doesn't need to be infantilized. It just needs to be explained and broken apart in a way that they can understand. Anyway, that's a handful of stories. It also talks about, like, refugee camps and how they've been especially hard for people with disabilities during the pandemic.
1: There's these stories everywhere in the world, and also like in our own communities. I want to encourage people to find out the stories and experiences of disabled people in your ward or neighborhood during the pandemic. Even that is going to be different from you and probably worse. (laughs) You know what I mean? I think it's remarkable that you found all these things and I appreciate like the variety and the diversity, but I also like don't want people to think that This is only happening in other countries or removed from them. Like, no, there are people in your ward right now who are disabled and neurodivergent who have had their lives significantly impacted by COVID-19 in ways that yours has not been because you're privileged in different ways. So Mm -hmm. listen to them, ask them what their experience has been. Yeah. And then share it with us because we'd love to hear it. It, Well, get their permission to share.
0: (laughs) yeah <laughs> encourage
1: yeah. them to reach out to us <laughs> thank you for listening or reading our podcast today please stay involved with us we do lots of things on instagram com slash holy human that's w-h-o-l-y-h-u-m-a-n on facebook follow us there at holy human podcast join the church of jesus christ disability education group on facebook created by one of our followers and friends brooke and you can email us if you'd like to be involved holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com
0: and thank you to mattis for intro and outro music we accessed the song through freesound.org bye friends